Hi there and welcome to The Tech Street, your go-to source for the latest legal updates on the fastest moving sector, brought to you by Minter Allison, Rudd Watts. Kia ora everyone, hi there, I'm your host Jane Parker, a partner in our technology team and today I'm joined by Kate anderson Tanakwe. Kate, Kate's a senior associate in our technology team and today we'll be discussing contracting for large technology projects. So Kate, over the years we've done too many of these to count, haven't we? There are bread and butter, and while each one is different, we found that there are key similarities in the process uh, to ensure that it all starts out on the right foot. So in particular, um, it's often those fundamental differences at the beginning of a relationship that are the ones that are causing trouble later on, um, ending up in under-delivery or overspending um, and expensive disputes. Yeah, that's right, Jane. So how do the buyer and supplier really know they're on the same page and that they're going to continue to be on the same page? In this podcast, we'll talk about the areas where misalignments between buyer and supplier commonly occur and some questions to ask. Um, We're talking about this now, so hopefully, whether you're a buyer or a supplier, you can have a successful and efficient relationship with the other party, get through the contracting process easier, and set up the tech project for success and an acceptable risk profile. And just quickly before we begin, please note that nothing we are discussing today is legal advice. Yeah, nice disclaimer. We're lawyers (laughs) after all, right? Um, So we're going to focus on the doing part of a contract, and this is the part that I love because... We get to find out what's happening with the transaction, what the parties are actually wanting to do, and it's a really practical time to actually find out how it's going to work, who's doing what, and also how they expect that relationship to flow between them. So, where does the contracting process start? And funnily enough, it's a long way before any contract actually gets written, um, as you and I know. So I always like to start with the basics, and it's the same for a small or a large transaction. It's just often in a large transaction, there might be a few more stakeholders or a few more people to be concerned about. But for the small transactions, for the small organisations, often these types of projects are really important for them because they've got less room to manoeuvre and if something goes wrong it can be even more catastrophic for them. So it's quite nice to actually just start off with some basics which both both big and small organisations need to think about and it really does start off right at the outset with someone wants to buy something to fill a need, um, something's not working in their business and they want to fix it or they can see a business opportunity and they want to get a benefit, right? Good for the customer to be clear on what that is right at the outset um, because it's really hard to contract for something that you don't understand yet. Yeah, absolutely. And in a technology context, that might sound quite twee, but you kind of go, yeah, the customer should know what it wants. Of course the customer should know what it wants. But actually, when you go to ask what that looks like in a technology project or a procurement context, sometimes the really easy basic stuff gets overlooked and... Often it's, uh, it's quite important right at those early stages to work out if you're looking for an output, mm-hmm. like what is it that the supplier is going to provide for you um, as an outcome, or have you got some really particular processes in your organisation that means you need to be really focused on the inputs. Mm. And often we see that you've got an outcomes-focused contracting relationship. The customer says, we don't really mind how they do it so long as we get this outcome. But then when it comes to finding out how the supplier is going to provide the service Mm. or the piece of technology, equipment or whatever it might be, suddenly the customer comes very focused on inputs Mm -hmm. um, and you can get a real tension between the customer and the supplier at that point, Um, particularly if the supplier's been told, 
we don't mind how the supplier does their business, just make sure that it works and we get the outcome we need. And then suddenly they find a customer trying to dive into their business and potentially tell the supplier what the supplier is supposed to do. So right at the outset, understanding is it an outcomes-focused arrangement? Is it an input-focused relationship? Won't necessarily be a binary discussion at that point, all or nothing. But what are those really key inputs that the customer must have so that the supplier knows what it needs to then provide its services to meet? And actually, for most contracts, and this seems odd for a lawyer to say, but for most contracts, there's not actually a lot of legal risk involved. The the actual laws that you need to make sure the the contract complies with uh, not always but often quite minimal so thinking about things like the Commerce Act and price fixing or privacy compliance or misleading and deceptive statements but generally there's not actually a lot of legislation that you need the, the contract to comply with. Yeah I, I totally agree and I think you know even when we're talking about the Commerce Act and you kind of go oh when would that apply that's if there's an exclusive arrangement that's going to last a long time or if particularly in a reseller arrangement it's where we sometimes see those price fixing things Mm -hmm. right where you might have the vendor who's trying to license some software direct to a customer they've got a reseller who's the middle middle person in that that arrangement and there is someone trying to make sure that the license is sold at a particular rate and who Mm -hmm. gets to control that so that's where you kind of would see that commerset coming in But by and large, actually, those are secondary. What they're actually doing, whether they're buying some goods, um, some equipment, or if they're buying some services, by and large, that's not really the heart of the legal transaction, I agree. Really important, and don't, please don't think we're ignoring it. I mean, what would we do without some legislation in the mix as well? I think the biggest risk is that the contract doesn't reflect what the parties want to do in practice. That actually the way that the contract is written just doesn't reflect what they're expecting or what they were doing, uh, what they're going to do in practice. And if they haven't set it up for success from the get-go, then you kind of go, well, maybe that's just because everything will go smoothly and they don't need to worry about those rainy days. We've had a few rainy days. On the flip side of that, you kind of go, well, what's the purpose of the contract? And the purpose of the contract, I think, is one, it's to set it up for success, like you were saying before. That's how we know what each party's going to do, when they'll do it, um, what they're getting, what each party is providing, Mm -hmm. the quality that it'll be provided at and when it'll be provided, what they get to keep, and what they get to use, what the price is that they're paying for, and what gets included in that, and what won't they be paying for, so they can assume that that's sitting with one, one, one or other of the parties. Sometimes tax can be pretty important in that. And then if you've got that whole set of concepts sorted, then you're probably, I reckon, about 80 or 90% of the way there. And to my mind, when I'm thinking of the contract, that's sort of that first big section, the doing section, that is just so important. And if you've got that sorted, then you'll know what's going to flow further down the down the con- contracting process, down that relationship process, um, because you'll have a pretty good idea about where some of the risk lies mm-hmm. and what you would do if any of those things that you're expecting to happen doesn't happen, because there's normally a fairly practical response to that, and understanding how that works sort of like th- flows through the whole contracting process. So... Understanding that doing section, absolutely critical. And if we've got that right, I reckon we're a long way there. You can obviously have some protections to make sure Mm -hmm. that that doing section happens the way it should. And then inevitably, if something goes wrong, then it'll be their fault, your fault, or no one's fault, Mm -hmm. um, as we've seen with COVID. You know, who could be blamed um, in that 
that situation in some instances. Uh, and then contracts will have to come to an end, a relationship will have to come to an end at some stage, and the consequences of that are so important. And then at the end of the contract, there'll be like a general section where you get some people's eyes glazing over <laughs> as they see a notices section or a jurisdiction, actually quite an important part of the contract. How do you deal with some of the other more administrative parts of the contract as well? To pull that all together is we really need to understand what the relationship is about. Then we can understand what the contract should say and make sure that it is actually reflecting what the parties are expecting and not what the the lawyers have decided to write, which doesn't actually um, reflect at all what the parties want to happen or think is happening. Um, And then sometimes you get people diverging from the contract without really understanding that that's what they've done. So Yeah, totally. And that's even more relevant now, I think, where you have people wanting to contract on their standard terms. Mm -hmm. And those standard terms are anticipating a particular way of happening. Normally... Uh, written in the language and to the advantage of the person that's written the contract. Mm-hmm. Often if it's on supplier, supplier's standard terms, then in terms that are quite friendly to them. Mm-hmm. But it's the same if the customer's writing the contract and it needs to be on their paper too, right? So those standard terms, while they can have a benefit, are definitely something to be mindful of because mm-hmm. actually they might not reflect the actual situation, the actual context and what the parties are wanting to, to deal with. And I think that's particularly relevant Um, when we're looking at sort of cloud-based transactions now and the ability to scale up the way that services are provided, not just for one customer, but across a whole whole set of customer bases. Let's have a chat Mm -hmm. about uh, what are some of those things that are really important, not just for the cloud-based relationships, but as a general rule, and we'll see where we land. What sort of relationship should the customer be expecting when they're going into this kind of transaction? One of the things that we see where there's a big mismatch right from the get-go is, is this relationship strategic between the two parties? Is this something where each party go into it thinking the other party is equally as important to them as they are to the other? Mm. Or are they one of many? Is this a scenario where you're just another customer and you'll get the same service that we dish up? And it's really important to understand that right from the get-go because salespeople, I think, are fantastic at making you feel special and making you feel individual. And actually, is that the case for the service that you're buying from that vendor? Or is that just the skill and the prowess of the the salesperson at stake? Mm. Actually, if this is a really key strategic relationship that you've got and you do want to be really important, and then you subsequently find out that you're one or many, take a number, we'll see you when you're ready. That can really be quite awkward once it gets discovered. If that happens to be after the contract's signed, even worse, particularly if in your organisation as a customer you've been briefing people in management or at a board level or other stakeholders about the type of relationship you thought you'd have and then you find out actually no, we're not quite as special as we thought. So we've definitely found that one to be an issue for some people. It's not really like the old school development projects Mm. where software was being customised and delivered for the customer in a really bespoke Mm. way where they're the only person that could use it. We're seeing less and less of that. Yeah. A long way, yeah. So, and, and that's absolutely spot on when we start looking at how in that software development, where you're one of many, actually, as a strategy, a lot of customers are saying, we want the protection of not being the only one with this software. Let's get something that's off the shelf mm-hmm. um, and, um, or something that's multi-tenanted. And then we can take the protection that the supplier's got to look after all of us 
if it's working for one, it'll be working for all. Uh, with that, there are obviously a few other issues that come with that. Are you going to be the first to get your service back online? Mm-hmm. Or do you have to wait for everyone else as well? How do you get prioritised in that mix? And that's again, how special, how strategic are we, or are we one of many? To your point, talking about what should we expect from each relationship, how does that work from a governance perspective? Mm-hmm. Is this a relationship where everybody has got a role equally mm-hmm. in this to be a decision maker? Or are you really a service taker where you'll receive mm-hmm. the updates as they're available but you won't have a hand in deciding whether you can take them or not? Mm-hmm. Is this designed specifically for you? Mm-hmm. Are you going to be the first one to use it? Or are you going to have to fit into the supplier's world? And we know there are some large software companies that have the benefit of looking across an industry, serving that industry, and creating processes that they think are best practice. And if you want to take on board that particular type of software, then you wrap your arms around the the supplier's process Mm. and change your own processes to do that. How big is that change management process going to be in your own organisation? That's also a really useful thing to find out up front. Yeah, thinking about things like resourcing within your own organisation if you're going to be taking updates when they're provided to you, not when you want them necessarily. Yeah, and how, how much testing is involved in mm. that? Are you able to do all the testing in time to meet the release dates or do warranties and other protections disappear if you're not able to be as responsive as the vendor's expecting? Yeah, yeah, or do you have in your industry particular areas or times of year when it's just not a great time to make changes. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have a Christmas shutdown period if that's relevant exactly, for you? Or, yeah. uh, like in New Zealand when a lot of New Zealanders go on holiday in that January period, uh, that's really important. Yeah, but international providers aren't necessarily shutting down then. So. Yeah, for some it will be right back on, right back on deck. Um, is there a busy shopping window? Yeah, we've seen Easter and Black Friday sales take off. So all of those things, if you've got a lot of a lot of processes and systems that must be operating for you at a particular window, some of those things will be really important. And how does that actually fit with your organisation's timeframes and scheduling? One of the other things that's really quite interesting looking at change mm. uh, is not on that day-to-day scenario of you know dealing with updates or, or those sorts of things, maybe on a slightly bigger scale dealing with a new release, or what does continuous improvement look like? What's on the Roadmap. Yeah, exactly. And can you impact that roadmap at all, or is it just whatever the supplier is thinking? Exactly. How much window into that roadmap do you get? How much of a window into that roadmap do you get? And that's something that's actually more problematic for a lot of customers than they may initially think, mm. especially if they've been promised that there's some great functionality that's still going to continue with the product that they're purchasing, and that's a real draw card for them. They get very excited knowing that no software is likely to be perfect on day one, and there's always the opportunity for improvement. But actually, do they get an opportunity to put their ideas into action? Mm-hmm. And if they wanted something that was specifically for them to get a first mover advantage, potentially, or to be able to um, let... Uh, to to get just even some functionality that they're looking for. Are they able to get the supplier to commit to that Mm. or are they really just at the whim of the supplier who will do that if and when they think it fits their customers' needs? Are you able to talk to other users about it or is that going to be a breach of the confidentiality provision which says you can't talk to anyone other than us about our product and our service? So definitely some things to think about there. And then change. The one thing that's constant is change, right? (laughs) Nothing ever stays the same. So which part of the solution can be changed by 
them, the supplier, or by you, the customer? Does it require agreement, or can it be forced upon you? And that's a really important one too. Uh, particularly in that cloud environment, mm. there may be things like a major security issue that comes up. Does the supplier have to get your agreement before they can roll out something or do suspension? Or is that taken for granted that the supplier knows best in that context? And do you trust them not to use it as an easy out from providing <laughs> a service and making it available when they might otherwise have had another downtime that, that you weren't expecting? At the end of it, all of these things need a degree of trust. Right, because if you go in there thinking, I'm not sure that they're as good as their word, that's a real red flag. If you haven't got that at the outset, it's going to be hard to get it later on once you're, you're yeah, stuck Yeah, you're them. in a relationship together. It's, it, you need to be able to work together um, to, to manage this going forward. It's, it's not a one-off and then everyone walks away kind of scenario. Totally. And a lot of these systems too, once they get implemented and they're up and operating and you've got a whole bundle of people in your organization using it or a whole bundle of customers relying on it it becomes really sticky to that organization (laughs) really tricky to change out there's a whole lot of risk when you try to do that so choosing right at the outset yeah often easier than getting in quickly and then finding out that you've got surprise later on and it's not quite what you're expecting and there are costs to exit let alone costs to change and all of the inconvenience on the way through. So that sort of goes then to knowledge and balance for the customer. At the start of the contract they're not likely to have as much insight as they might perhaps have later so how do you overcome that? Yeah and how do you know that you've actually got enough information to take the leap Mm. to contract with the supplier and not just continually find yourself asking questions and more questions and more questions. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Now, I think this is relevant for any transaction, for any customer-supplier relationship, but we see it all the time, particularly where the supplier knows lots about their business, obviously. Mm. No one will be more familiar with their product or their service than they are, and they might give lots of anecdotal Mm-hmm. evidence and stories about how reliable they are and what availability looks like, what they do in one situation or another. And then you go to look and to see, are they prepared to contractually commit to that as well? Mm-hmm. And actually we see often that's where you get a lot of outs in the contract, a lot of carve-outs, a lot of exclusions. It might just not read the way that you thought it did at first first glance. Yeah, a bit of a disconnect between that marketing language you were talking about earlier and then what the contract actually ultimately says. Absolutely, absolutely. And we know that actually it probably won't matter unless it goes wrong, but when it does go wrong, Mm -hmm. that's when it does matter. And actually we also find that it's really good to have those conversations right at the outset, just to see exactly where the supplier is able to pitch their level of confidence in Mm -hmm. their own product. Uh, Most customers don't mind being told that actually availability is at one level when they thought it was another. So long as they feel that it's representing value and they're expecting it, it's where you get that disconnect Mm -hmm, between what they're expecting and what they weren't. But back to your question, how do you know you've got enough information to commit? And how can that customer get the assurance before they're contracting? There are a couple of stages here that I think are relevant. One is that due diligence, if you like, that Mm. conversation that you have before the contract is signed. And it's bound to be more than one conversation. Mm-hmm. It's asking a whole lot of questions and it requires people not just from the commercial person, the salesperson, talking to your salesperson, but we often find it's better to get that combination of the technical and operational and the commercial. And while those people can have those conversations, really useful if your lawyer can be involved in those or at least understand what the key 
elements are and as the conversation moves on what's constant and what's changed. Another nice thing about getting a lawyer involved at that stage, maybe not for every conversation, I'm not mm-hmm. necessarily <laughs> suggesting that, uh, on the way through, is that someone just a little bit removed from those day-to-day relationships can also ask the awkward question or suggest a question that can be asked, what are the gaps in the mm-hmm. story that are missing? Um, if this plot develops the way that we think it's going, who's <laughs> going to be a bad person, who's going to, who's going to be a baddie, who's going to be a goodie, and, and how's that all going to play out? And, um, and some of those conversations, coaching in the background to ask the questions, can actually be a really useful thing just to flush out what's, what's really being offered and what's not being offered. Or even pushing it out to the external lawyer's fault. My lawyer's making me ask this question. Oh, the bad, bad external lawyer. <laughs> and then once you're actually in that contracting process and understanding how is this going to play out, you can anticipate some of those issues even before you sign the contract, mm-hmm. right? And so I think once you've asked that initial set of questions before the contract gets signed, that's useful to put in what the key elements are into the contract. And then you've got a common understanding about plans and who's doing what. You seldom sign a contract and then you're able to go live the very next day. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's usually set up, there's more investigation, more scoping, more understanding what those detailed requirements are. So then you can get that customer set up so that at some stage, whenever they're ready to go live, they actually can. Before then, we'd sort of like say actually moving from the level of detail in the contract or the level of detail at the end of those pre-contractual negotiations and getting to a level of detail where you're ready to start implementing properly, there's often a gap there. Mm-hmm. So having that, that first phase and then knowing, well, once we have got all of that information, once we've got all of those plans down to that next level of detail, once we understand what the true costs to both parties are, knowing that there'll be a cost to the supplier to perform the services, but there's also a cost to the customer, not just to pay the supplier Mm -hmm. for those services, but also to resource their own internal workforce and potentially to make the changes that they need to with other systems that might interact with the service that you're getting from your supplier. So there's a whole ecosystem mm-hmm. that the customer will be looking at saying, can we get this all to fit together in the way we need it to, to make it work? Or so even in a legacy system where you're trying to transition out, you might have time pressures in that scenario where you need that you need to take into account as well. Yeah, totally. So if you've got an old legacy system, an older system that you're going to replace or it's going out of support or it's going to be made obsolete or something like that. You might have a whole range of pressures that mean, mm. actually, let's speed this thing up or <laughs> let's slow it back down again. Um, and so what we would suggest, though, is that if you can, at the end of that first phase after the contract's been signed, you do have a scoping scenario. And then before you go live, you're able to... Well, let's just hold back for a moment. Let's have a decision-making process about whether you want to proceed to the next stage mm-hmm. of implementing, of doing that that build implementation, that transition, if you like. And then you can actually sort of like make that decision before you've put in that really heavy investment. Um, are you confident going forward with this supplier? It would be lovely if it was absolutely as clean cut as that and you were mm-hmm. able to get everything sorted in that planning phase before you took the next stage. But we know that that's not practical as well and there's often a bundle of things that need to be done in parallel. Mm-hmm. But actually, there will be a point in time when all of that documentation is ready to be signed off or approved mm-hmm. and you've got a fuller picture, even if some of the work started in advance. And I still think it's a really valuable point 
to have, once you've got that really full documented picture at any given point in time, you know, as between the supplier and the, the customer, they can choose when that is, mm-hmm. um, just being able to say, okay, are we good to go or, or aren't we? Um, and I think that's still really valuable. And then there'll be the build and implementation. If that goes as they all planned, then that'll be off the back of the documentation. Oh, shouldn't that just be so easy? <laughs> if only, if only. Um, but having those off-ramps can be really useful, I think. This whole conversation sort of comes down to understanding your risk, understanding that no relationship is going to be without risk and working out who's best placed to bear that risk, manage that risk, who's being paid to take on that risk, um, and actually who's, who should really bear the consequences of that happening and, and understanding that in the planning phase. Absolutely. And I'd say, well, a lot of that conversation that you've just had there focused on the risk. Mm-hmm. I would take one step back and say, let's work out what it's going to take to set them up for success. Mm-hmm. And if we know what that stage is, then we'll naturally understand what the risk is. And all of those things that you've described are absolutely spot on. So from our perspective, let's set it up for success, understand all of those things that you just talked about, and then we can frame it in a risk conversation after that as well. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for in this podcast today. However, Hopefully, we've managed to provide you with some understanding that the nature of the relationship that's being offered compared to what's being expected is a real cornerstone issue uh, that the customer particularly needs to be comfortable with, but also the supplier. Um, And always better to do that before they're entering into a contract if they can. Yeah, and once you find out what that entails, you can plan for success. uh, But remembering also that no relationship or system will ever stay the same. So also thinking about how change is managed and who controls what type of change. And I think we'll talk about that in another episode. If you enjoyed today's episode, please remember to rate, review or follow the tech suite wherever you get your podcasts. You can subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your inbox via our website at www.minterallison.co.nz.